Hello again, this is Pastor Ed Collins with North Christian Church. This is Understanding Good That Sanctifies. Let's open up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible gift, this gift you call life. Father, thank you for giving us time to be sanctified in it, to bring glory to you, Father, in a way that we just could never dream of doing on our own. What an incredible privilege this is. May we never become familiar with it, Father, but understand it for what it is. A grace gift is an expression of your precious love towards your own children. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are hurting in some way, shape, or form, Father, that this message make it to them and that it comforts their souls even if they don't realize they need it father we pray that this message make it to them and we pray also that they understand that we're with them in spirit regardless of what they're going through father we're just so grateful for your grace in their life and may they be as well father we pray also for those that are still lost in this world and without hope that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late we are most grateful and thankful of course for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a time like this a time to rejoice father what a privilege this is we do just ask for your blessings on this particular message we ask this in jesus christ precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this message is titled, Understanding Good That Sanctifies. It'll make a lot more sense if you've been keeping up with the messages. These are sort of a rolling thunder on the topic of good. Uh, here's the recurring principle from our previous two messages up here on the board regarding the fruit of grace. If there are circumstances in your life that you are still in bondage to somewhere along the line you've not received grace the way you ought to maybe you've missed it rejected it misunderstood it etc but somewhere along the line you've not received grace the way you ought to and I truly hope that you've taken the time to think about this point last message's title was overcome evil with good which began with a passage that had come up twice in a row in our curriculum. And whenever that happens, we have to really pay close attention to it for the Spirit's trying to impress upon our souls something very important, something fundamental or pivotal to messages like this. Go to Titus 2, verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. Again, this will be the third time that we've gone to this passage. And it really is the launching pad for this particular message as well. Remember, last message's title was Overcome Evil with Good. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That's a reference to deliverance from the penalty of sin. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age and that's a reference to being delivered from the power of sin 
Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's a reference to deliverance from the very presence of sin. And that's something that's in front of us. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You see, purify for himself. That's a reference to sanctification, to make one holy, which means to set a person apart for God. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous. In other words, God has a purpose for sanctifying us. Here's what the Spirit took pause with last time. It was on that short phrase, for good works. And this really highlights the purpose of sanctification. And it brought us to this survey of what good is. Here's the point on the board. Good implies God's scale of values, not man's. That's a big deal. Because if we have our definitions twisted, we're twisted. Again, God implies, or excuse me, good implies God's scale of values, not man's. To quote James 1.17, part A, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The corollary to this principle, as we noted, was this, relative to good works. They are never, ever by means of work done by you in the absence of his grace. So you could never do anything good in this world in terms of experiential sanctification, being delivered from the power of sin, let's say, to borrow from Titus 2. Good works, they're never ever by means of work done by you in the absence of his grace. So goodness and grace go hand in hand, as does humility, of course. As we just noted in Holy Scripture, if we're sanctified for the purpose of being zealous for good works, then we need to understand what the Bible means when it uses the word good in context here. Again, if we're sanctified for the purpose of being zealous for good works, we just read that, then we need to understand what the Bible means when it uses the word good in context. So we read Romans 12 last time to get us situated uh, let's catch the highlight reel before pressing on. Go to Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. The entire chapter is really a wonderful treatise on the idea of good, of being good even. Romans 12, 1 encapsulates much of it. I appeal to you, brethren, uh, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's all of you. We've studied this in the past. To present all of you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's good. That's humility. That's receiving grace. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, you are to be all in. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. This is the, 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 the contrary side. Right? This is the other side. Don't do this. Do this all in. That's good. Don't do this. This is bad. This is evil. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's why we're doing what we're doing, studying the Word of God. Transformed, this is a reference as well to sanctification, transformed by the renewal 
of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of uh, what is the will of God, what is good. You see, what do you have to do? You have to learn the definition of good. This is what Romans twelve is teaching us. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't get your definitions of good or grace or even love from the world. That's a dangerous road. It's a perverted road. Don't do that. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, doing what you're doing right now, reading Holy Scripture, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and accept acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Do not be intoxicated with the world, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, stay humble. Jump forward to verse 9. This is just a highlight reel, remember. Verse 9, Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Remember, the end goal of sanctification is love. Abhor what is evil. What? Hold fast to what is good. Again, how important is it for us to understand what good is? If we don't understand what good is, what are we going to hold fast to? Some perversion of it. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be zealous for good works, to borrow from the point on the board, right? Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Jump forward to verse 19. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Never return evil for evil. We studied this in some detail last time. Never return evil for evil. We'll see a little bit more of that in this message as well. Verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but do this. Overcome evil with good. Again, how important is it for us to understand what good is? Here's where we got our message title last time, but with a little extra context to our individual lives and how exactly this overcoming can be successful, we were given this principle up here in the board. But overcome evil with good. A little bit more in context of our own lives here. You don't have to actively or exhaustingly try to overcome evil. Even that which is in your own life by force. You simply leave it and turn to good. God is light and light extinguishes darkness without fail. Again, simply turn to good. Repent. We call that repent. Last time I used a bonfire analogy to drive this principle home. The gist of that was you don't, you don't have to try to put out the fire yourself. You only need to turn away from it and walk towards something less harmful, something good. How simple is that? Deliverance 
from evil is as simple as that. You see, if you're religious and you and you get all, you know, your hackles go up and you're like, oh, I'm going to fight this evil. I'm going to do this thing. You lose. You're exhausted at the end of the day and you've accomplished nothing but blowing an entire day in self-righteousness. Deliverance from evil is as simple as simply turning to good. That's how we overcome it even. As an extension of this concept, not only should we not wrestle with evil to try to overcome it by our own power, but to do due diligence here, we certainly don't make the mistake of trying to overcome Satan even, or the fallen angels either. A perfect example is with Michael the archangel, who, given his prominent position, still didn't reproach Satan directly. Go to Jude, verse 9. Jude, verse right before Revelation. Jude, verse 9. I say verse 9 because there's only one chapter. Jude, verse 9. Again, this is just a sort of... Um, amplify the point the Spirit's making here, that we should not wrestle with evil, nor should we wrestle even with evil beings, even uh, evil angels. Jude 9, look at Michael the archangel, how powerful he is, and he still didn't reproach Satan directly. Jude 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Let The Lord is the Logos, right? So let the word rebuke others. Let the Lord rebuke evil. It's not our place to wrestle with evil. That's the point. Again, the point is that we aren't to wrestle with evil one-on-one. -on -one. Rather, we are to leave it up to God. How much simpler of an approach to dealing with evil is that. As we just read in Romans 12, 19, up here on the board, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, leave that stuff up to me. I don't even want you spinning cycles on it. This is very important, my friends. Please don't miss it. God, remember, is the omnipotent one. He's the all-powerful one. We are not. So the same person who's saying, leave that to me, is able, is capable. And he's saying to, to his own who are incapable of overcoming evil that way, alone, if you would. God is the omnipotent one. We are not. That's the point. We aren't even as powerful as the angels, certainly not on our own. And even with divine providence on our side, we aren't expected to square off with evil by ourselves. Rather, we are instructed in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I hope you see what the Spirit's saying here. Again, up here on the board, but overcome evil with good. You don't have to actively or exhaustingly try to overcome evil by force. You simply leave it. You leave it be and turn to good. God is light and light extinguishes darkness without fail. Simply turn to good or repent. So here's the crux of our last message. This turning to good implies that you know 
what good is. Fair enough? Yeah, that's the whole point. If the point of the board is, well, simply turn to good, this is how you overcome evil, leave the evil up to God, you turn to something good, you leave all that stuff behind, well, you better know what good is. That's the point. You better not have a perverted definition that was given to you from one of your enemies, because <laughs> if that's the case, who are you turning to? You're literally turning to your enemy, because you think that's good. And if you're still struggling to complement these messages, the Spirit also suggested that you take the time to go back and revisit an old series he gave us not that long ago, a few years ago now, titled What is Good and Who Gets to Define It? It was a 17-part series. Uh, part 1 started on November 9th of 2017. Okay, back to our primary course of study, which has been about, again, overcoming evil with good, and now understanding good that sanctifies. So we're going to develop this a little bit more in this message, something we started in the last message. As we read, uh, as we read this passage that we're about to read, think about the nature of overcoming evil. That the Bible doesn't say to wrangle with it. Rather, it says to simply seek to do something good instead. Focus on what I just said. The Bible says to simply seek to do something good instead. Ah, in other words, don't get baited into a fist fight that you will always lose. Leave it. Turn your cheek if you want to look at it that way. Walk away. Instead, seek to do something good. So here's the, here's the um, passage, and I've skipped 1 Thessalonians 5.15, and then I've given you Verses 20 and 22 as well. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, 21, and 22. See that no one repays evil or repays anyone evil for evil, but what? Always seek to do good. You see the contrast there? Do not spend your time seeking to repay evil for evil, but always seek to do good. Do that thing instead. That's where sanctification, that's where deliverance is. That's where peace and contentment is. You see? But always seek to do good. God said, leave that stuff up to me. Leave the wrath up to me. You always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. But test everything, of course, and hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Do you see what the Bible teaches us? Just step back, big picture now. What is the Bible teaching us? You overcome evil by simply turning to do something good instead. Don't just let that be an academic reality for you. Make it a strategy in your life. Honestly, make it a strategy. Whatever your thing is, and I apologize, this seems to come up a lot, but whatever. Maybe, here's a good example. Maybe you've got a drinking problem, and instead of picking up a bottle of wine, you pick up your phone and offer some encouragement to a friend. You see, it's that simple. Truly, it is. You can make it a strategy. If you know you've got a weak point, if you know you have a propensity to fall into uh, fisticuffs with the wrong people, with evil, you know, you're, you're, you get reared up, and the next thing you know, uh, you know, 20 minutes later, you're walking away saying, how did I just end up doing that again? How did I end up in that situation again? Why do I always fail? Have a strategy. 
when that situation arises, when you start seeing, you know, you know when certain things stop percolating up in your life. When you see that happening, where an event is going to happen, where you failed, oh, I don't know, a hundred or a thousand times, have a strategy. Turn away from it and do something good instead. It's that simple. So don't just make it an academic reality. Make it a practical reality. Make it a strategy in your life. It works. With that said, here's the biblical caution we received last time. Isaiah 520 up here on the board. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, don't get, your, don't get tangled here. Woe to them who do that. All of this is to amplify a principle that we keep coming back to, Romans 12, 21, up here on the board, but overcome evil with good. Again, here's the strategy. You don't have to actively or exhaustingly try to overcome evil by force. You simply leave it be and turn to good. God is light, and light extinguishes darkness without fail. Simply turn to good. In other words, repent. Getting practical, here's a good litmus test that the Spirit gave us last time as well. When have you, or say this to yourself, when have I or do I depend on my own devices in the absence of God's grace to accomplish a work? I'm supposed to be zealous for good works, right? That's God's purpose for sanctifying us. When, though, have I or do I depend on my own devices in the absence of God's grace to accomplish a work? And in the absence of God's grace, which means I'm rejecting grace, which means I'm being arrogant, which means it cannot be a good work, when do I do that? The perfect example is when you're under pressure, like some of you are right now. Here's the follow-up question up here on the board. When you're under pressure, do you strive or do you seek contentment? When you're under pressure... Do you strive, in other words, in your human flesh? Or do you seek contentment? The way, say, Paul alluded to in Holy Scripture. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. He just handed it over to God. If someone was even attacking him, he handed it over to God. Do you strive or do you seek contentment? Here's what the Bible has to say about the righteous answer to that question. And I need you to concentrate. We got this last time, but it's worth another go-around. 1 Timothy 6, 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the scripture. Godliness and contentment are a package deal. We saw something similar with love and obedience months ago. Godliness and contentment are a package deal. The only way godliness and contentment can exist is together, in the same sphere. Let me give you a principle from... Uh, a few messages back to add to this, just to compliment it. Uh, MacArthur on 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, on the word contentment, this Greek word means self-sufficiency and was used by Stoic philosophers to describe a person who was unflappable and unmoved by external circumstances. Remember, godliness and contentment. This contentment here means you're immovable, unflappable. Christians ought to be satisfied and sufficient and not to seek for more than what God has already given them. He is the source of true contentment. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, 9, 8. 
Philippians 4, 11 through 13 and 19. Uh, the godly person, we might summarize it this way, the godly person is the content person. The content person is the godly person. That's what we see. Last time I presented you with this, this slide, we didn't have the time to dig into scriptural references, but let's do it now. Go to 2 Corinthians 3.5. 2 Corinthians 3.5. Again, God is the source of true contentment. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5. God is the source of true contentment. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Whew, that sounds like what we've been studying. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. In other words, let us be content. How about 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8? 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, in other words, always, you may abound in every good work. You see how this ties back to his purpose for sanctification was to be zealous for good works. How does that happen? By grace. This is what good looks like. This is what good looks like. It's good to receive God's grace in humility. Excuse me, because God gives grace to the humble. How's that for contentment? How's that for a source of contentment? All sufficiency in all things at all times. Just feel like going... Ah, yes. How about Philippians 4, 11? Philippians 4, verse 11. Again, we're just amplifying the point on the board, this idea of contentment and that God is the source of true contentment. Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that, and I alluded to this earlier, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what? content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty of plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. And here's the beautiful verse, right? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is content because he is godly. He is humble. He is grace-oriented. Remember, Godliness and contentment come as a package deal. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a godly viewpoint. Paul is content because he is godly. He is humble. He is grace-oriented. Verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours, he says, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Beautiful encouragement for all of us. Again, those are the references to the point on the board. This word contentment in 1 Timothy 6, 6, it means self-sufficiency. It was used by the Stoics. And it was to describe a person who was unflappable and unmoved by external circumstances. Christians ought to be satisfied and sufficient and not seek for more than what God has already given them. He is the source of true contentment. Okay, back to our primary point, 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
When they come together as a package, this is great gain, says the Bible. This is wonderful news. This is good. Godliness and contentment are a package deal. That's goodness. If you attempt to abide in a lifestyle that counterfeits one or the other, godliness or contentment, if, in other words, if you try to live a life without one or the other, you're living a lie. And guess what, as we saw last time, guess what? That lie is ancient. It's ancient. You're trying, you're trying to supplant something good. That is, godliness and contentment are in the same sphere. The idea of that, you're trying to supplant that idea and then call it light. And woe to you. Here's, here's the ancient uh, principle, though, and it goes all the way back to the garden. Eve's example. Up here on the board, any attempt to do good in the absence of God's grace results in misery. Quote, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, Genesis 3, 6, the result, spiritual death and curses from God. Here's the principle I want you to take away with you, though. If God doesn't give it to you, it isn't good for you. If God doesn't give it to you, it isn't good for you. Let that sink in. This dovetails, by the way, nicely uh, with last Thursday's message when we focused on Jeremiah 29, 13, which said, you will seek me and find me, remember, when you seek me with all your heart. When you seek me with all your heart. And so, okay, so we have in one sense, it says, if God doesn't give it to you, it isn't for you. Okay, I get that. But then in other places in the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 13 is one place, not the only place. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So we need to step back and synthesize this when you seek me with all your heart thing with the point on the board. Since there's a little natural tension, right, between what we just read and the point on the board. I mean, which is it? Do we say, oh, well... At the first sign of negative response from God? Or do we persist in seeking him? Do we say, oh well, at the first negative sign? Or do we persist in seeking him? Do we throw in the towel and say, oh well, I guess that thing I prayed for last night isn't for me. That's it, you pray once and that's the end of it? Or do we persist in a certain godly way? The Bible certainly instructs us to be persistent in our approach to the throne of grace, right? I mean, indeed, that's true. For example, we noted this last week. Go to Luke 11.5. Luke 11.5. We noted this last week as well. So we're just trying to resolve this tension. The point of the board says, if God doesn't give it to you, it isn't for you. But yet in other parts of the Bible, it says, persist in asking. Luke 11:5. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, 
he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And remember that word is woven through this persistently. For everyone who asks receives. The one who, asks, the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And there's a persistency there in the original language, as I've taught you. So we definitely have the following principle as well. Persistence wins. Keep going to the throne of grace for answers, a la Hebrews 4.16. God will either answer your prayers or change them. Either way, you will be delivered. Now, that's the key. It's perfectly godly to be persistent to the throne of grace. But you got to be humble when you get there. When he responds, you have to listen. You have to open yourself up to what he says in response to your prayer. Again, keep going to the throne of grace for answers. God will either answer your prayers or he'll change them. Either way, you will be delivered. I mean, think about it. Some of you are probably saying, yep, I remember I used to, I used to pray for this one thing all the time 10 years ago. And I've since, he's since changed my mind, my heart, and my soul about that thing. I don't pray for it anymore because I know it's not good for me. Either way, you will be delivered. So how do we synthesize this point with our previous point, which was if God doesn't give it to you, it isn't good for you? Because some of you are saying, but I keep praying he's not giving it to me. Which principle applies? I mean, where do we land? between these two principles? The answer is, you listening? The answer is, and this is going to take some thinking on your behalf. The answer is, where do we land? We land on grace. We land on grace. We can borrow from another principle from last week to help us resolve this tension up here on the board, by grace through faith. We go, we go boldly to the throne of grace, knowing that regardless of the answer or answers we receive back, they are intrinsically good because they are from God. So God just says, hey, you just focus on leaving the evil behind. Repent from that stuff. Turn away from it. It's that simple on that, on that front, right? Get away from the bonfire. You come to me. You come to me. That's, that's your, fir your, your first good step is coming to me. So we go boldly to the throne of grace, knowing that regardless of the answers we receive back, they are intrinsically good because they are from God. Okay? We persist in seeking the truth. That's where our persistence is. It's in seeking the truth, not that which our preconceptions have led us to believe is truth. You might say, it's true. This thing is definitely good for me. And God's saying, nuh-uh. Eventually, he will change your mind about it. Eventually, you'll be delivered from that evil because that's what it is. Anything that's antagonistic to the will of God, we classify as evil. So when you think something's good for you, woe to you when it's actually bad. We persist, though, in seeking the truth. That's the distinction. That's the, that's the point of reconciliation here. This is how we... This is how we resolve that tension in our souls. We persist in seeking the truth, not that which our preconceptions have led us to believe is the truth. 
Sanctification hones our persistence for grace. Let that, chew on that uh, over the weekend. Sanctification hones our persistence for grace. Mm. This, my friends, is the crux of all thing, all things good for we humans. This is what is good. This is grace. Grace is our source of deliverance and sanctification from sin, whether positionally, experientially, or ultimately. We saw that in Holy Scripture. Grace is the one thing we cannot reject. He says, go boldly to the throne of grace. I'll take care of the rest. Grace is the one thing we cannot reject. Grace is good because it is heaven sent. As James wrote, all good things come from heaven. So the encouragement from the Bible is as the latest blog stated. Do not grow weary of doing good. This is a very good thing. To receive his grace. We want to know what's good? This is it, my friends. Receive his grace. The best good you can ever do in time is receive God's grace. And who, pray tell, does God give grace to? If I was behind my pulpit, hopefully the entire congregation would say to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Understanding good, this is where you end up, this is where we end up with this message title. Understanding good that sanctifies. Grace is good, as is the humility required to receive it. You want to be sanctified, you have to be humble. I've been saying this for a decade. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. Any arrogance, overt or covert, that seeks to undermine that humility is a detriment to you. Again, understanding good that sanctifies. Grace is good, as is the humility required to receive it. If we're trying to understand, you know, what is good, this is it. It's grace. It sounds so simple. It's always so simple, isn't it? But this is the truth. This is what the Bible teaches us, my friends. If we're trying to understand what good is, we're trying to get our you know, our hands on a good, solid definition, it's grace. The net-net, in a practical sense, if it's from God, it's good. If it's not, it isn't. If it's from God, it's good. If it's not, it isn't. Put that on repeat and write it down somewhere. Again, the point on the board, understanding good that sanctifies grace is good, as is the humility required to receive it. The Bible tells us over and over not to be deceived about this. Do not be deceived. As we studied in great detail not so long ago, sin is incredibly deceitful. So much so, one of its primary objectives is to go unnoticed. That's the whole genesis, if you would, of that book, Covert Arrogance. Sin is incredibly deceitful. Remember, we had an entire, a large series at that on the deceitfulness of sin. Someone in the congregation has already gone back and started listening to that series again. Sin is incredibly deceitful. And one of its primary objectives is to go unnoticed. Uh, as we used to say in the Air Force, to fly under the radar. 
This is what covert arrogance looks like. Hence the Spirit's emphasis on that topic uh, as well as of late. Here's a perfect passage to speak about this as well. Go to Galatians 6 verse 3. Galatians 6 verse 3. Spirit's had a lot to say about this idea of being covertly arrogant. Galatians 6 3. And remember it. Keep this on the forefront. Sin is incredibly deceitful. For if anyone thinks he is something... How great is that person's darkness when they think they're in the light, in other words? For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, what does it say? He deceives himself. <laughs> he deceives himself. Up here on the board, he deceives himself. This is the epitome of covert arrogance. It hides sinfulness away, you know, out of sight. This strategy allows sin to persist and avoid the scrutiny of introspective self-examination. Calling darkness, and I say introspective because you're going on the inside, you're going deep here to find that covert arrogance. Calling darkness, light and light darkness accomplishes this. When our definitions are twisted, we are. Again, this is what it looks like. Someone who thinks there's something when they're in the light, but they're in the dark. This is the epitome of covert arrogance. It hides sinfulness away, out of sight. This strategy allows sin to persist and avoid the scrutiny of introspective self-examination. Calling darkness light and light darkness accomplishes this, this very thing. When our definitions, here's the crux of it though, especially for the sake of this message. When our definitions are twisted, we are. When we think when we call something good and it's actually evil because we've taken we've taken a definition from the world, then it's twisted and we become twisted. When our definitions are twisted, we are. Again, verse three. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let's press on. But let each one test his own work. Hmm. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Again, verse 7, do not be deceived. Think of verse 3 again. He deceives himself. This is a recurring theme, right? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. If he says you're going to do best by receiving grace, that that's what good is, he's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap what? Corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's just a nice way of encapsulating what I said earlier. The best good you can ever do in time is receive God's grace. Hence our running principle up here on the board, understanding good that sanctifies. Grace is good, as is the humility required to receive it. This is what it means to understand the kind of good that sanctifies us. Grace is good. 
as is the humility required to receive it. And that's what he asks of us. He says, go to the throne of grace. Go boldly. Come to me. Leave the bonfire behind. Leave the evil behind. Don't wrestle with it. Don't get religious with it. You just come to me. Let your mind be transformed. Think about how we started off, Romans 12 too. Let your mind be transformed by the truth. Grace is good. That's truth, as is the humility required to receive it. Grace saves and delivers us in every phase of sanctification, as we noted in our previous message. Up here on the board, by grace through faith we are saved. This, In this we must be supremely confident. This was one of the pinnacle points of our long series on the Lord is our confidence. If you remember, by grace through faith we are saved. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about salvation proper. I'm talking about salvation and deliverance, being saved positionally, experientially, and also ultimately. In this, we must be supremely confident. Think about godliness and contentment and those in the, as a package deal. Confidence is in there. Love is in there. Obedience is in there. All the good things, all the things that come from above are in that very same sphere of God. And so we, our confidence even rests in grace. And that's a good thing. In this, we must be supremely confident. This is both our assurance of positional sanctification, aka salvation proper, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and experiential or progressive sanctification, aka being saved daily. Those are our experiences right now, John 17, 12, 2 Peter 2, 9, as well as what's in future for us, our ultimate sanctification. In other words, perfection in heaven, a la Titus 3, verse 7. Again, here are those scriptural references in terms of positional sanctification. We have Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In terms of experiential sanctification, 2 Peter 2, 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And finally, in terms of ultimate sanctification, Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, what's the point? The point is that grace is what saves and delivers us in all three phases of sanctification. That's why it's so good. Again, the point on the board, by grace through faith we are saved. In this we must be supremely confident. I'll repeat myself for a third time now. The best good you can ever do in time is receive God's grace. Why? Because that's what activates sanctification for us. That's what brings glory to him. He pours it into us. It overflows even into the laps of others. This is what brings glory to him. Learning to receive grace. The best good you can ever do in time is receive God's grace. However, as a balance statement, grace is never forced upon us. God presents us with grace, and it is quite merciful gesture when you really think about it, commands we receive it, but never forces us to take it. Grace is never forced upon us. 
It is presented, though, receiving grace is presented as a command. What does that mean? We always have a choice. We can obey his command to receive his grace, or we can reject it. We can obey in humility, or we can reject in arrogance. And this entire message has been premised on this very statement. As I prepare to close, here's what, we've, what we learned recently, and this shouldn't be a shocker. Sanctification, then, is a function of obedience. In my notes, I've got, why, oh, why do we keep coming back to this one principle? It's true. How many times has this orange slide been in front of your eyes? Sanctification is a function of obedience. Why does we keep coming back to this thing? Hmm. Maybe it's because of this principle that I alluded to earlier up here on the board. The goal of sanctification the divine context for the life of a believer is love. God says, listen, love and obedience are in the same sphere. Godliness and contentment are in the same sphere. How do you get there? Humility. How do I bring you to me? Grace. Is that not good? It's beautiful. Grace is good. If we're after the definition of good, start with grace Grace is good. Grace is the expression of God's love, which also is good. If we seek to understand the source and the expression of all things good, these are the two things we need to remember. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to study a word together as family. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. We just ask for your blessings as we take these things that we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls. Oh, Father, what a wonderful thing this is you've given us. What a grace gift this message is, Father. We just pray that we're sanctified by it, that we stay humble, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.